From Gimlet, I'm Alex Bloomberg, and this is Without Fail, the show where I talk with artists, athletes, entrepreneurs, visionaries of all kinds about their successes and their failures and what they've learned from both. Just a quick warning before we get started. We discuss sexual assault in this episode, so if that subject can be difficult for you, you may want to skip this episode or take care while listening. In 2018, the gymnastics world was forced to reckon with one of the biggest sexual assault scandals in sports history. Former USA Gymnastics doctor Larry Nasser has been sentenced to up to 175 years in prison for sexually abusing young athletes. He pleaded guilty to molesting seven girls in USA Gymnastics and Michigan State University. Authorities are still looking for answers about how he was able to abuse hundreds of girls and women over several years. Larry Nasser, a renowned physician who had worked with thousands of athletes throughout his career, from young amateurs to Olympic gymnasts, was sent to prison on 10 counts of criminal sexual assault and on child pornography charges. Hundreds of women and girls alleged abuse by Nasser, with at least one survivor saying she was only six when the abuse began. Nasser's crimes also pointed to serious and systemic problems with the sport's governing body, USA Gymnastics, known as USAG, which had been accused for years of shielding their coaches from allegations of abuse. And it's entirely possible that Nasser would have gone on abusing young women and girls had it not been for one remarkable person a person who managed to take on the institutions that protected Nasser and navigate a legal system that in many ways felt stacked against the very survivors it was designed to serve. That person is Rachel Denhollander, a former gymnast who herself was abused by Larry Nasser as a teenager. She's my guest on today's show. Long before the criminal cases and convictions and the whole nightmare with Nasser began, Rachel says she was just a kid who loved gymnastics. She remembers vividly watching the 1996 Summer Olympics in Atlanta, when the U.S. had something of a dream team of women gymnasts known as the Magnificent Seven. Their run that year, you might recall, featured one of the most iconic moments in sports history, when Carrie Strug, who was competing with two torn ligaments in her ankle, famously stuck the landing off the vault to secure gold for the team. I mean, I was glued to the 96 Olympics like everybody was. Uh, I just, I loved the sport. I'm a very type A personality, so I loved the combination of mental and physical that the sport required. Uh, I loved the idea of taking something that was difficult and making it look beautiful. I loved the perfection of it. Uh, but my family couldn't afford the gym fees when I was younger, so I had to wait to start until I could uh, work to actually help pay for my lessons. So I didn't begin until I was uh, about 11 and a half, which is... Uh, Basically, you know, dead for a gymnast. So you you were starting, it's like, I'm going to try to get into the NBA when I'm 45 or something. Probably more like NBA, you know, 98, 99, <laughs> oh, that type really? of thing. Yeah. I mean, it, nobody nobody starts when they're almost 12. Right. Um, so it was, I was never going to be anything great. I just loved it. What was your best routine? Oh, goodness. Um, you know, the, the hardest thing I really ever trained on floor was a front handspring front tuck. That was, a, that was about the only good tumbling move I could do, but I could do that. Uh, beam was actually probably my best, uh, and it, it just fit my personality very well, again, because it just required you know, a great deal of mental focus, and I, I loved the idea of taking something that looked very difficult and making it look very beautiful. Uh, I can barely watch the balance beam because it just stresses me out so much, and I'm just like, <laughs> it makes me so nervous and so scared, and I'm just like sweating, and I just like, my number one thought every time I watch the balance beam is like, why would anybody do that? But you were telling me that's the thing that was calling to you. Yeah, I, I actually liked that uh, the best out of any event. Uh, and part of that was because, to be perfectly honest, I was a bit of a chicken, uh, and that, that was also the slowest apparatus. <laughs> Uh, so, you know, if, if you crashed, it hurt, and you could crash really bad, but you're not going to crash at breakneck speed the right. same way you might uh, peel off the bars or run into the vault horse. So there Rachel was, barely a teenager, but ancient in gymnastics years, practicing her sport out of a pure love for it. But even for non-Olympic hopefuls, gymnastics demands hours of intense practice and can take a grueling physical toll. After a couple of years in the sport, Rachel developed pain in her wrists and back, her parents took her to doctors, but none of them understood the unique athletics of gymnastics, and so none of them were quite able to help. And then one day at the gym, Rachel got a tip. The medical coordinator for the entire USAG was practicing right there in her home state. 
someone from my gym said, hey, why don't, you know, why don't you try Larry? He does things nobody else can do. Had you heard of him? Oh, absolutely. That You know, Larry was the gold standard uh, for all of us. I mean, everybody knew who Larry was. You know, that, that iconic vault uh, with Carrie Strug in the 1996 Olympics, there's this shot of her being helped off the mat. Uh, and as she's being helped off the mat, you can see this younger man with, uh, with dark hair reaching his hand out. And you can hear him saying, I got her, I got her, I got her. Uh, and that's Larry. Uh, everybody knew Larry was the one who treated our Olympians. Uh, you know, Larry was the one in charge of uh, the safety and well-being of our best athletes. And if that's who USAG picked for our Olympians for the best of the best, well, Larry had to be the best of the best. Wow. So when somebody suggested you see him, it felt like, oh, my God, I'm getting, like, the, the best doctor in the world. Oh, absolutely. Uh, because he wasn't just the medical coordinator for USAG. He also practiced out of Michigan State University. He was a professor there. Uh, he was the medical coordinator for probably the most prominent gym uh, in the state of Michigan. And he owned patents. He had published a book on conditioning and gymnastics. You know, everybody knew who he was. They, we knew about his charity work. We knew about all the, you know, all the great things that he did. Um, and so Larry was very lucky. Loved. Mm-hmm. Given all that, what was it? What was it like to meet him for the first time? I thought it was a privilege. I mean, you know, here's here's this no name level five gymnast who's never going to be anything, and I get to see the doctor, the Olympian. See, like it doesn't, you know, it doesn't get any better than that. Level five gymnast is. I'm assuming level five is not the top. No, no, no. <laughs> five well, being the lowest, not the highest. Yeah, no. Five, five was the entry level competition at that at that time. What did he do in the beginning to help? To help? What What did he say? Well, there were a lot of things he did that uh, that seemed very legitimate and that gave us um, extra confidence that we were in the right place. You know, he did a much more thorough assessment than a typical sports med doctor does. He was able to explain how, you know, certain muscles in my shoulders being tight were putting extra pressure on my lower back and wrists. He put, walked us through the physics of gymnastics. He explained everything uh, in great detail. Uh, it was very thorough. Uh, it was clearly very knowledge-based. Uh, and so that was, you know, that was just further reassurance to us that this is as good as it gets. But during that visit, after Nasser had conducted his assessment and explained everything to Rachel and her mom, he did something else that, to Rachel, didn't feel right. And Rachel has told this story a lot, even written a book about it. And so instead of having her recount this difficult emotional experience again in our interview, we're just going to play some tape from the audiobook version of Rachel's memoir, in which she writes very candidly about what happened at that first visit to Nasser's office. He pulled a model of a pelvis from a drawer. See this, he said, extending it to mom. So this side of her pelvis is rotated, he explained. What I need to do is adjust it. I'm going to grab the pelvic bone and pull it back into place, okay? He pushed his glasses up on his nose, raised his eyebrows, and nodded at her as if asking a question. Okay, mom answered. Then Larry pulled me to the middle of the room, just a few feet from my mom, and slid my feet about 12 inches apart. He knelt down and placed one hand firmly on my lower back, looked down at the floor as if concentrating, and wrapped his second hand around the inside of my leg, under the shorts. Okay, I'm going to apply some pressure now, he reminded me. Suddenly, his hand went inside my shorts, inside my underwear, inside me. Wait, what? I glanced down at him. He was biting his lip a bit as if concentrating. No sign of anything being off. My mom sat there right in front of me, watching him adjust my hip. He pushed his fingers farther in and pulled hard. It hurt. There, he announced. Got it. Rachel said that even though she felt confused by and deeply uncomfortable with what Nasser had just done, it wasn't actually clear to her that it was abuse. She already knew that there was this procedure called pelvic floor therapy, where doctors treated muscles of the pelvis internally. And she explained to herself... That must have been what Nasser was doing. Plus, her mother was right there in the room. If Nasser was going to abuse her, surely he wouldn't do it when her mother was sitting right next to her. Of course, she would later learn that that was a trademark of Nasser's abuse. It was almost always done under the guise of legitimate medical treatment, often while parents, like Rachel's mom, were in the room. One of the ways that Larry managed to groom the society around him uh, was that he made it appear that the parents knew what was going on. You know, he knew children trust their parents, mm-hmm. uh, and he knew we would have no way of knowing. Our parents couldn't see what was going on. Uh, and so it was a very long time before uh, I knew that I even needed to tell my mom what was happening because she was sitting right there. Uh, I had no idea she couldn't see. So, you know, I'm sitting there going, well, my mom will speak up if something's wrong. Mom can't speak up because she doesn't know what's going on. But I don't know she doesn't know. 
So and so at this time you 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 were you were fifteen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just past my fifteenth birthday. And and emotionally, um, what was going on inside? Like, how, how were you processing that? Initially, I really did believe uh, it was valid medical treatment and that the problem was me. You know, uh, it, I shouldn't I shouldn't feel this way about it. What's I think devastating about abuse at the hands of authority figures and people that we trust is this initial shock and then the attempt to exp- to rationalize it on right. their behalf. Yeah, there's very much that uh, that desire, and there, there are a lot of dynamics to that. You know, in some cases with childhood abuse, uh, as was the case for many of Larry's victims, uh, you know, they don't even know that they've been abused uh, because the their understanding of sexuality isn't developed enough to a point to understand what they've experienced. And that's actually a very common dynamic, particularly when the abuse starts at a young age. It just shapes your perception of normal. Right. Uh, you know, and there is often a desire uh, among survivors to be able to have an explanation because if you can explain it away, it means that you haven't experienced what you think you've experienced. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes uh, lying to yourself uh, or, or trying to rationalize it away actually feels safer uh, than facing what's been done. Rachel continued to see Nasser, and he continued to administer so-called medical treatments that didn't feel right to her, but that she found ways of explaining to herself. But then, after several visits with him, something happened that Rachel couldn't explain away. During a visit, Nasser groped her breasts while she was on the exam table. And when she glanced at him, she could tell he was aroused. At that moment, Rachel froze. She was shocked, deeply confused. And even later, after the appointment was over, she didn't know how to share with her mom what had happened. Couldn't bring herself to put words to it. She went back to Nasser for one more visit, but she refused to let him do anything other than examine her wrists. Over the following year, Rachel says, the effects of Nasser's abuse began to show up in her behavior. She grew increasingly fearful around men. She'd get anxious if someone stood directly behind her. And Rachel's mom started to notice. She was able to tell that I was just um, very tense, uh, fearful, um, and that there were were very consistent dynamics to when I would would have that behavior shift. Uh, And so she finally came to me and she said, look, I'm noticing this pattern in you. Has something happened that I don't know about? Uh, And I'm very grateful she did that um, because that gave me the ability to start opening up to her uh, in ways that I probably wouldn't have because I still really blamed myself. And I wasn't afraid that my parents would blame me. Right. Um, But, you know, that process of putting words to what you've experienced uh, is just incredibly painful and difficult. And so having someone open that door for you was incredibly helpful in my case. Wow. It's very perceptive of your mom to, to do that. Yeah, it was. So, and so at that point, you were able to tell her what had happened uh, with Dr. Nasser. Right. Um, and, and was there a decision about what, what to do that came out of that conversation? Yeah, I mean, you know, obviously when we, once we started realizing, there was that question of what do we do with this information? Who's going to believe us? Uh, and I had seen enough of how abuse is treated in society and, uh, and just the incredible difficulty uh, of getting any form of abuse taken seriously. Uh, you know, I remembered or heard reports of some of those contentious hearings with Anita Hill and Clarence Thomas. Uh, you had allegations against uh, Bill Clinton. You had allegations against other political figures. You had the scandal with the Catholic Church. And you just watch how people talk. As a survivor, you're very attuned to how society talks about abuse. Uh, and you mm-hmm. see how as soon as the survivor speaks up, the automatic response is, she's in it for money. She's in it for fame. She just wants attention. She must have a political motivation. Uh, people don't understand what, it, what evidence looks like in abuse cases. Uh, they don't understand trauma. They don't understand normal victim responses. You know, and the, the automatic response is to blame and shame the victim. Right. But by that point, I was a certified paralegal. I became a certified paralegal my junior year of high school. Uh, and so I had an understanding of our legislative process and our judiciary process uh, and just all of the legal dynamics that were going to surround this type of a case. I understood the societal dynamics, uh, you know. Uh, and so I looked at, uh, you know, Michigan State University and USAG, and I realized if I pull that Larry thread, I'm touching a Big Ten university and their sports program. And I'm messing with the Olympic governing body that makes the most money in our Summer Olympics. And so at that point in time, I said to my mom, you know, I can't do this quietly. I can't do it on my own. We're going to have to have media pressure. Uh, and I just had no idea how to do that. You know, at 18 years old, how do you take control away from you know, a major state university and an Olympic governing body? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so what I really started to do was just watch 
for an opportunity. And while she watched for that opportunity, Rachel kept quiet. She didn't share what she knew about Larry Nasser with anyone outside her immediate family. She started college on the side she coached gymnastics, but her memories of the abuse were with her daily. And then one day, coaching at the gym, she was confronted by something that made it impossible for her to stay silent any longer. One of my little girls uh, was pigeon-toed, and we were concerned that there was hip involvement. Uh, and she was about seven years old, uh, and I, my coach made a, the head coach of the gym made a passing comment to me, hey, I'm going to send her to Larry. Uh, and that was the first time that I knew anyone from our gym was going to see Larry. I wasn't aware of that. Uh, and I knew I can't let that happen. Mm-hmm. You know, this, this is one of my gymnasts. I have to stop it. Uh, and so I kind of ran through, well, who, do, who do I start with? Uh, and and I picked this coach to disclose to because she was respected in the gymnastics community, and I knew she would want to do the right thing. Uh, and she was uh, actually living with a police officer. Uh, you know, they were in a very serious relationship. And I figured, you know, if I can get a coach and an officer uh, who just goes with me to report, uh, who just says, you know, I know her and she's not crazy, mm-hmm. uh, that would give me a much greater chance of being taken seriously uh, than if I went myself. Uh, and so my hope was at that point in time that I would be reporting to police and I wouldn't be doing it alone. Uh, unfortunately, uh, that's not what happened. Uh, and, you know, her, her response was not malicious, uh, but she just came back and said, you know, I can't, we can't find any evidence that anyone else is saying uh, what you're saying about Larry. Uh, and, and I'm going to go ahead and send this gymnast. Uh, and by the time she told me that that decision had been made, uh, she had, this little girl had actually already seen Larry and been referred on to another specialist. So there was nothing I could do. Uh, and then she said, she cautioned me for my own sake. She said, I, you know, I think you should not say anything else, uh, because it could, it could really come down on you. If anyone hears that you're saying this about Larry, what that did do is confirm to me, I can't even get a friend to believe that I know what I'm talking about, that when I say I've been abused by Larry, I actually know I have been. And if I can't get a friend who's a police officer and a friend who's a gymnastics coach to know that I know what I mean, there's nothing I can do. There's no way I'm going to convince somebody uh, who's not a friend. Mm-hmm. Do you think she didn't believe you? Uh, you know, I don't think you send a child to someone you've been told is a sexual predator if you believe they're a sexual predator. If you really believe that this person is committing sexual assault under the guise of medical treatment, you don't send someone else to them. You just don't do that. So, yeah. It's, it's, it really is like landing just the, just the loneliness of not being believed. If somebody like this. Yeah, it's, it's very isolating. Yeah. Yeah. Did at this point were you feeling well? I'm, maybe I'm just gonna. This is just gonna be a secret that I'm never gonna share with anybody. Like, wh- what? What are you thinking about? Like, what to do with this secret that you're carrying around? This this knowledge that you're carrying around. Yeah, I mean, what weighed on me more than anything was knowing that he wouldn't stop. Yeah, you know, at that point in time, I still didn't understand how extensive Larry's abuse was, um, but I knew he wasn't going to stop, and I knew I wasn't the first. How did you know that? Well, predators don't do that. I mean, you know, again, I am very much a, a type A, a detail-oriented person. And so when I need to understand something, I study it. Uh, and I mm-hmm. did that. And so I understood, you know, how many uh, victims the typical predator has. I understood what it meant, uh, the fact that Larry's movements were very rehearsed and brazen, uh, that it meant he was doing this regularly. You know, and predators don't stop. When someone has crossed that line and they've become a sexual abuser, there's never just one victim. And, and I think that's something that a lot of us uh, who have been survivors of a serial abuser carry with us is the fact that we couldn't stop him. You want so desperately to be able to save all those little girls, you know, walking in his door, and you can't do it because you can't get anybody to listen. So so you reported the abuses as best you could, and you had this sort of devastating conversation with your friend and, and the friend's boyfriend who was the, who was the police officer. Um, over those, like, the intervening, I don't know, 5, 10, 15 years, like, can you talk a little bit about how Larry Nassar's abuse affected your life over that period? Like, what kind of shadow did it cast or what kind of impact did it have? Uh, you know, abuse really changes everything. It changes the trajectory of a person's life. Uh, because the vast majority of time you're abused by someone that you know, 
uh, that you have some sort of relationship or acquaintance with. That's why they have access to you. Uh, And so oftentimes, uh, abuse takes all of the concepts that you need for normal human interaction, concepts of trust and safety, uh, and it weaponizes them uh, to be used to cause violation at the deepest level. And so nothing feels safe anymore. Even the most basic things like riding an elevator. Uh, You know, you get in a crowded elevator, somebody bumps you. Is that intentional? Was it an accident? Were they seeing how far they could get before you say something? You know, if you overreact, they're going to want to know why you overreact. Uh, And they might Mm -hmm. suspect that you've been abused, which nobody's supposed to know. If you don't say something and they're testing the waters, well, now they know they can get away with more. Right. You know, it's just, it is the simplest things. Uh, because you do that with your own abuse. Like I look you know, back on the situation with Larry, at what point should my red flags have gone up? You know, when he told me my boots were cute, when he gave me a high five, you know, when he said he was going to take care of my back. Because that grooming process starts much earlier. It starts before there are obvious signs of abuse. Uh, and so that makes you start to question, is, is what I'm seeing someone just being kind? Uh, or is this something that I should have my guard up on? You know, it changes every facet of normal daily life. One of the things that you said was that you you started to do a lot of research mm-hmm. um, into into sort of abusers and 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 sort of how they how they practice what they do and hide it. And as you're talking, I, I feel like I'm hearing sort of the results of like what you learned, like the fact that um, their movements are practiced, the fact that there's a grooming process. Is this all stuff that like that you were sort of learning about? as you were sort of going through this period of like being in this sort of wilderness where people don't believe you. And how did it feel to learn that? Was it was it helpful in some way? Was it disheartening? How, how did it feel? Yeah, it was it was a long process of learning. Uh, you know, and there were there were elements to it where uh, it was helpful because it gave me answers to at least understand what had happened, why it had happened, understand uh, just my own responses to it, uh, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was it was also incredibly sobering because it was a reminder that I wasn't mistaken. Yeah, and this is going to be an incredibly uphill battle, and I have no idea how to stop this man. Hmm. Did you ever think to yourself, well, maybe I won't, maybe I'll just try to forget about it and not worry about trying to stop him? No. No. He had to be stopped. Coming up, Rachel finally sees a chance to stop Larry Nasser. That's after the break. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. Welcome back to Without Fail and my conversation with former gymnast Rachel Denhollander. By the time Rachel had turned 30, she'd moved from her home state of Michigan to Louisville, Kentucky. She'd gotten married. She'd had kids. She'd become a lawyer. But she'd never stopped thinking about what happened to her as a teenager. And so for years, she kept watching and waiting for an opportunity to try to stop Larry Nasser, an opportunity that would allow her to step forward and share the story of what he had done to her in a way where people would actually believe her and actually do something about it. And then, one day in 2016 that opportunity finally presented itself. So it was, uh, I don't usually have my computer on during the day because at that time mm-hmm. I had three kids who were four and under. So it was a, it was oh a, busy, it was a busy household, man. Uh, it was great. Uh-huh. Yeah, it was great, but it was busy. <laughs> three under four. Yeah, three under four. Uh, and I did not usually have my computer on uh, during the day, but I had, to, I had to make a grocery list. And so I actually had my, uh, was carrying my youngest on my back. She was teething and real fussy. So I had her on my back and the other two were, uh, were playing in the kitchen and I opened up my computer to make the grocery list 
Uh, and I had left Facebook up from the night before. And trending in that sidebar was the Indie Star article. Yeah, and the headline was out of balance. Uh, and it was it was about how USAG had systematically covered up reports of sexually abusive coaches. Uh, and so I clicked on the article and I read it. And my first thought was, I was right. You know, they have been hiding reports of sexually abusive coaches. Uh, and they would have covered up for Larry, too. Larry wasn't mentioned in the article. The journalist didn't know about him yet. Um, but it confirmed those dynamics, you know, those dynamics that were the open secret at USAG. So I thought I was right. And then my next thought was, this is it. Uh, because I knew the spotlight doesn't come around more than once uh, on the same organization for the same issue. And if it wasn't, if it didn't get out now, it would be years before we would be having the collective conversation again about the abusive dynamics at USAG. And you literally thought this is it at that moment, as, yeah. as you were reading the article, that was the thought that was in your head. Because that's what, the, that's what I was waiting for. I was waiting for any sign to be taken seriously, any hope of getting control away from those organizations. You have to do that through the media. There's no other way. When you're dealing with organizations that size, you have to get outside of their communication bubble to take control of the narrative. And so that was exactly my thought. This is it. This is and it. if it's not going to happen now, it's not going to happen. And so I immediately wrote to the journalism team. Uh, I started with to whom it may concern because I didn't know what journalist was picking it up. Uh, and then I said, you know, I, I have information that might be relevant to your investigation. I was not abused by a coach, but I was abused by the Olympic team physician and the elite medical coordinator. Uh, and I gave them Larry's name. I gave them a very brief recap of his work history, how he worked for MSU, uh, and just the, you know, the positions that he had occupied. So I told them, uh, you know, I will come forward as publicly as necessary if you can just get the truth out. Uh, and I hit send and fed my kids breakfast. <laughs> How long did it take to write it? Maybe five minutes. You don't have much time when you've got three kids four and under. Boy, you really are a type A. <laughs> you just get it done, man. <laughs> uh, how did it feel to write that? Uh, I was, uh, I felt very sick. Because I knew, I knew the chain of events that would be unleashed if it did what I needed it to do. Uh, it felt like the choice I should never have to make. And nobody should be put in a position of having to do it that way. Um, you, know, you don't get a choice to be abused, and then you don't get a choice who you tell about it. Uh, so it was, um, you know, to, to use the, the easy phrase, between a rock and a hard place. Mm-hmm. Because I knew what the email needed it to do, and I knew what it would mean for me and our family if it did what I needed it to do. Which was what? Oh, goodness. Uh, I assumed I was committing for, for, to at least a five- to seven-year process if the news article printed, uh, because that's about how long it takes to get through the first round of trial for a criminal trial. Uh, you know, and my hope was that we would reach other survivors who could file a police report. Your hope was that this article prompts other survivors to come exactly. through. Exactly, right. Yeah, if they, if they could see somebody and, and they could relate to them and have that, oh, that's me too, that happened to me too experience, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that might open the door for someone else to know that they're not alone, to understand what happened to them, to file that police report. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and so it was, it, it was uh, a very painful decision, but it wasn't a decision. It had to be done. Two weeks after sending that email, Rachel heard back from a reporter at the Indy Star. The reporter had taken Rachel's claims seriously. So seriously, in fact, that he eventually asked if he could come to Louisville to meet her in person. He also had a request for Rachel. He wanted to record the interview so they could post a video along with the article. Rachel agreed. And so, after years of only telling her story of abuse to a handful of people, Rachel prepared to tell it to a much wider audience. And one thing I learned talking to Rachel Denhollander, she takes preparation extremely seriously. Absolutely everything was calculated. Absolutely everything. From the clothes that I picked to the hairstyle to what details I chose to release and how I chose to release them to the emotion that was conveyed in the facial expressions. Absolutely everything was calculated. We know one of the automatic attacks when survivors come forward is, oh, she's in it for money. Uh, You know, and so I wanted to appear uh, middle class and professional. We were, and I wanted to make it clear that we were. Um, Not because people who are poor are more likely to make things up, but just because I knew that was going to be a line of attack. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I wanted to not appear uh, too professional because too professional makes you less um, less emotionally reachable mm-hmm. for survivors. Uh, and so I picked, uh, you know, I picked a business skirt uh, and I picked a very soft uh, colored top 
uh, to pair with that business skirt and a soft hairstyle uh, so that I would appear emotionally accessible and yet clearly communicate, I know what I'm talking about, uh, because I knew Larry would watch that. Larry and USAG and the officials at MSU, I knew they would see that report, and I wanted to communicate to them very clearly, I am professional, I can handle this, yeah, and, and you're not going to be able to walk away from this one. I can communicate exactly what you did, and I'm not going to walk away from it. And I also needed enough detail in there that other survivors could realize that they had had the same experience. You know, uh, I needed enough detail in there that parents of survivors uh, would realize that their daughters might have had that same experience. Uh, I needed enough detail in there um, to reach all of those target audiences, uh, enough detail to make the general public go, oh, my God, that's terrible. Uh, you know, because that's what makes them, uh, you know, put pressure on organizations. Uh, is when you get that, oh, that's terrible response. Uh, So I needed enough detail in there to do all of those things. At the same time, I knew I was going to be uh, walking that line with the defense attorney of, well, you just made up a story and everybody followed along. Uh, And so I try to be extremely careful, uh, not giving such level of detail uh, that other survivors wouldn't have differences uh, so that we could see uh, both the continuity and the pattern in their story and, and my story. So, and you knew that because you knew that this was going to be one of the things that the defense attorneys might try. Is like Absolutely. they would sort of say, oh, just people were copycatting. Yeah. You gave such a detailed description that everybody just like took yours and ran with it. Exactly. So what happened after that interview? What did, what, what was the response? Uh, well, there were a couple of things actually that happened in between recording it and it actually airing. I recorded it, I think, on August 25th. Uh, and during that point in time before the recording, I discovered that I could file the police report. Uh, in Michigan. So we recorded the interview with Indy Star. We scheduled the appointment, went up to Michigan uh, to start the police, uh, the police investigation process. And at that point in time that I came forward and filed the police report, we actually didn't know if the Indy Star story was going to air. There were a lot of legal hurdles uh, to overcome at that point in time. Um, for, for the Indy Star itself. Right. Because as a, as a journalism organization, like you're sort of opening yourself up to all sorts of um, defamation right. uh, charges that can be quite weighty and like they have to be very careful about that. Yeah, exactly. So, right. uh, and so we didn't know that the story was going to air at the point we filed the police report. So for about the first two and a half weeks, it was just me and Larry. Larry knew who I was. He knew within 24 hours that I had come forward. Um, he got all over my LinkedIn profile, uh, for, forgot to go incognito and left footprints all over some of my social media profiles. Um, you know, and for those two and a half weeks, it was just the two of us. Uh, and then the Indie Star story came out. I was very embarrassed, um, and I was very confused, trying to trying to reconcile what was happening with the person that he was supposed to be. Everybody who's a gymnast knows who Nasser is. Uh, he's he's not just a normal sports med doc. He is extremely personable, extremely gregar- gregarious, very warm, very caring. Um, he's the type of person that that knows how to make you want to trust him. And it really did a couple of things. Uh, you know, it did cause that Me Too response in about a dozen survivors who came forward uh, that first day. Uh, oh, wow. But which was incredible. Uh, and a lot of people hear that and they go, oh, man, cat's in the bag, right? Well, not exactly. There was still the hurdle of actually getting Rachel's case and the cases of the other women who'd come forward prosecuted. After years of waiting for the chance to bring Nasser to justice, Rachel now found herself in the middle of a fast-paced and relentless legal process. And she wasn't just a survivor. She was also a lawyer herself. So she knew about all the things that could go wrong. What if not enough evidence came together? What if the case wasn't assigned to investigators or to a prosecutor who took the allegations seriously? If any one of these things happened, the whole case could fall apart. I was on the phone with journalists and investigators and attorneys uh, almost every single day. And and why you have three children and right, wow, um, that sounds like a lot of work. It was. It was it. How was it emotionally for you dealing with going through this this part of it? Uh, you know, I would say the process of coming forward, and many survivors will echo this. The process of coming forward in many ways is actually worse um, because you get to relive your abuse, but the next time you do it with an audience. And the only thing worse than being abused is being abused with an audience. Uh, and so that that time period was, I think, dark is the best way I would use to describe it. It was just emotionally incredibly heavy. It was emotionally exhausting. It was very painful. Um, you know, didn't sleep well. 
the mental whiplash of, you know, I'm on the phone with an investigator giving details of my abuse one minute, and I'm trying to parent these young children uh, the next. Uh, it's, just, it's just incredibly difficult to navigate. Uh, you know, it's a situation where one phone call can completely upend your day. There's no daily routine anymore mm-hmm. um, because there can't be. And you're just waiting. You, you've given the most painful details of your life to people that you don't really know. Uh, and there are conversations, you know there are conversations happening all around you about you, you know, how, how the case is going to be investigated, whether or not it's going to be prosecuted, what legal theory to use. And so, again, you know, as an attorney, I'm always thinking, you know, constantly thinking through, did they get the warrants right? Are they getting the warrants? If they got the warrants, did they get it the right way? Are they going to execute those warrants properly? Because three years down the road, we might have an appeals problem if we get lucky enough right. to get to trial because they didn't do something right in these first couple of weeks. Are they thinking through every angle as completely as I myself would? Pretty much, yes. Would. Yes. People are talking about you all the time, but you don't get to be involved in those decisions. Yeah. You know what needs to be done, but you can only hope the people who can actually do it actually do it. The investigation continued. More and more survivors came forward claiming abuse by Nasser. Rachel would eventually learn that there'd been allegations against Nasser dating back nearly 20 years to 1997, allegations that had been ignored. And from that wave of Me Too survivors coming forward, investigators caught a pivotal break. One of the survivors said that she'd been abused at Nasser's home. This was significant because it allowed investigators to obtain a search warrant for Nasser's house. When investigators went there, they discovered tens of thousands of images of child pornography on hard drives in plastic garbage bags outside his home. This was a turning point. Nasser's facade of innocence was crumbling, and the charges against them were mounting. And in the fall of 2017, Rachel got a call from the prosecutor, Angela Povolaitis. I was grocery shopping with my kids when I found out. Uh, So it was a very chaotic moment for so many reasons. Uh, (laughs) uh, But I I actually, I got a call from Angie. Uh uh, And she she said, I don't know what's going to happen yet. We're at the very beginning stages. But I want to let you know, Larry's attorneys have reached out uh, and they have asked about the possibility of a plea deal. Uh, And I was blown away. She was blown away because in exchange for avoiding a trial, Larry Nasser was prepared to admit what he did, to plead guilty. Coming up, Larry Nasser comes face-to-face with Rachel Denhollander and 155 other survivors of his abuse. That's after the break. This episode is brought to you by Rakuten. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% cash back at hundreds of stores, including headliners, Ulta, Ray-Ban, and Canon. Rakuten is how in-the-know shoppers get the best savings. They shop the brands they love and earn cash back on top of deals during Big Give Week, May 6th to May 13th. The cash back rates are even bigger. I'll be shopping for Adidas and Fenty. You can save on everything you need for summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. Join today for free and get an extra 10% cash back boost. That's an extra 10% cash back on top of Big Give Week's 15% cash back. You won't see higher cash back rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad, too, so let's get right to it. The new Moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. Welcome back to Without Fail and my conversation with Rachel Denhollander. After receiving word that her abuser, Larry Nasser, was going to plead guilty, Rachel knew she wanted to be there. So in November of 2017, she traveled to Michigan to take her seat in the Ingham County Circuit Courtroom to witness something she never thought she'd see. I half expected him to change his mind, to be honest. Um, but it was, uh, it was a gift I never expected to get, uh, to hear him acknowledge exactly what he had done uh, and to say those words. It's a gift most survivors don't get. A, a gift. What do, you, what do you mean by that? When you, when you enter a guilty plea, uh, you, have to, you have to stand up in front of the judge. Dr. Nasser, please raise your right hand. And the judge asks you a series of questions. Did you do this? 
criminal sexual conduct, first degree relationship, victim C. How do you plead? Guilty. You know, on count one, which is this crime, uh, and it, for, for Michigan law, of course, it was first-degree sexual assault. And so they would describe legally what first-degree sexual assault is, and then they would, would lead Larry through a series of questions. Do you agree that you did this to this person in this context? Did you do these actions? At that time, was victim C between the age of 15 and 13? Yes. And do you acknowledge that as her doctor, you were in a position of authority over her and used your position of authority to constructively coerce her to submit to penetration? Yes. With respect to count eight, victim D. Larry had to stand up there and he had to admit what he had done to me and what he had done to the nine other charged survivors, which is exactly what he had done to all of these other women who had come forward. Uh, And very few people ever hear their abuser admit what he's done. Yeah. For a brief point in time, he was forced to tell the truth. And we got to hear the truth from his mouth. And that meant a lot. As powerful as this was for Rachel and the other survivors, there was one catch. Because Nasser had agreed to a plea deal, there would be no trial. But the prosecutor, as a condition of the plea deal, had done something unusual. She said that during the sentencing phase, any survivor of Nasser's abuse, whether she was part of the criminal case or not, could speak openly in court about what Nasser had done to her. Good morning. My name is Kyle Stevens. Up until this point, I've been known as victim ZA. I'm addressing you publicly today as a final step and statement to myself that I have nothing to be ashamed of. I met Larry Nassar when I was somewhere around the age of five years old. You know, one of the things that people, I think, remember about the Nassar case uh, is the sentencing hearing. Mm-hmm. The statements went on for seven days and they were just wrenching. And um, I think it was something like 150 women ended up testifying. Well, what was that like for you to be in that room? It really felt like a double-edged sword. I mean, it was, it was an incredible gift. Uh, and it was so much better to be able to be with those survivors and to be there to support them, to do what I couldn't do. For 16 years, um, yeah, I wanted them. I wanted them to know that they mattered. I wanted to bear witness to their testimony, uh, to the grief, to the destruction. I wanted to do everything I could to communicate this matters, and you're worth it. Uh, and that was an incredible gift. It is also incredibly devastating to sit there and watch. I could not do a multiplication problem, and still had not lost all my baby teeth. I think we can all agree that someone of this maturity level should not be sexually active. But I was. Without without my knowledge or consent, I had engaged in my first sexual experience by kindergarten. And it joined an overwhelming... I remember even lying to you at times, saying I was in too much pain just because I didn't want you to do the procedure. I didn't know why I was asking this or lying to you. I just knew something wasn't right. I remember my coaches telling me to go see him, and I was actually quite excited. Then I went into the back room, and that's when everything changed. I was alone in the back room. When you hear that level of damage over and over and over again, and you realize that the vast majority of survivors came after that first report of Larry's abuse in 1997, and that the vast majority of us never had to be in that courtroom, that's an incredibly weighty thing to witness, and it should be. The next person you will hear from is Rachel Denholland. You were the, the, the last person to talk. How did you decide what you wanted to say? Yeah, it was actually really difficult um, because I had already been speaking publicly for so long. Um, and so I really, for a long time, I just looked at it and said, what, like, what is left to say? I've been saying it all for almost two years. What's left? Um, I had, uh, you know, been reviewing all of the legal paperwork against Larry, the affidavits and the warrants and everything that was publicly available. I had reviewed all the civil litigation. Uh, you have all of these people who could have and should have stopped Larry's abuse. You know, they've yeah. they've pulled out a scale and on one side they've put the interests of money and medals and reputation and liability. And on the other side, they've put you know, the bodies and souls of little children. And they've literally decided that money and medals matter more. And they did it repeatedly over and over again. They did it. I did not know that at the same time Larry was penetrating me, USAG was systematically burying reports of sexual assault against member coaches in a file cabinet instead of reporting them. 
creating a culture where predators like And I felt one of the most so important things to do was look at, uh, to, to really lay out the failures, to make people come face-to-face with exactly what had happened, the details, to put all together everything we knew about why Larry was able to abuse and to put the blame where it belonged, at the feet of the abuser and at the feet of the organizations who enabled him, and to make people come face-to-face with the realities of abuse. I did not know that contrary to my belief, the elite gymnasts whose pictures were plastered on Larry's wall were far from protected. That USAG, rather than supervising Larry, was allowing him to treat these girls in their own beds without even having a medical license in Texas. I did not know any of these things. And so as Larry was abusing me each time, I assured myself it must be fine because I thought I could trust the adults around me. My misplaced trust in my physician and my misplaced trust in the adults around me were wielded like a weapon. And it cost me dearly. And it follows me everywhere. Uh, but a lot, of, a lot of the motivation for me actually came from uh, William Wilberforce, where he has this incredible speech. He's a parliamentarian uh, in Great Britain who was able to end the slave trade in Great Britain. Uh, and he stands up in, in Parliament one day uh, and he starts describing the evils of the slave trade. Uh, and he makes all the comfortable, wealthy elite hear the words and, and come face to face with the reality of slavery. And he closes uh, by saying, you, know, you can, essentially, you can turn away, but you can never again say you did not know. And that's what I wanted to accomplish with my impact statement, uh, because at that point, the world was watching you know, and they had seen the devastation. I wanted them to see the failures and then to feel that weight. But may the horror expressed in this courtroom over the last seven days be motivation for anyone and everyone, no matter the context, to take responsibility if they have erred in protecting a child, to understand the incredible failures that led to this week, and to do it better the next time. You know, all of us, all of us, people love a good story. Uh, And all of us key into the emotional drama. Uh, But who are we going to be when we walk away from that? Are we going to take that with us? Is it going to spur change? Or is it just going to be this collective emotional kumbaya moment that actually has no effect when the cameras are gone? Uh, And so that's why I really wanted to systematically lay out all of those failures, uh, you know, and ask the questions that nobody wanted to answer. uh, Because I wanted people to have to grapple with it. It's so tempting to see this as like the happy ending to a horrible story. Yes. Uh, and I think a lot of people have done that. You know, they saw 156 women stand up and, uh, you know, and, and say, I'm taking back control and I'm confronting my abuser. And all of those things are true. You know, it was incredibly important uh, for our our justice system to be a, a place of fully orbed justice that looks at restitutionary justice and restoring what was taken. Uh, and that includes restoring, you know, the survivor's voice. Uh, but the reality is, you know, eventually those cameras go away and the courtroom doors close and survivors wake up the next morning and they're left with the damage. Right. Yeah, and Larry's put away, but the institutions that enabled him and the people that enabled him and the mindsets that enabled him, those are still there. And that's what we really have to grapple with. One of the things that I also think about um, is the, um, that like, so even if it is this easy story that people want to believe that like bad guy got arrested by heroic, brave women, and now now we don't have to think about this anymore. Even that story, when I look at all that you did, and I think it's fair to say that had you not come forward and talked to the Indy Star, there's, 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 there's a good bet that none of this might have happened. Maybe it eventually would have, but but it's hard to see you as anything other than a catalyst for what ultimately happened. And... And just thinking through everything that you needed to do to do that, um, and it still almost didn't happen. Mm-hmm. And just how yeah. perfectly you had to be so canny, you had to be so strategic, you had to be so forward thinking and thinking through all these angles, all while dealing with this incredible emotional burden. And most of us aren't capable of that. Um, and 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 that's the sort of thing that I that I think about is that like 
if not for it, it's hard to imagine if it hadn't been you that this mm-hmm. might have gone would have gone the way it was and 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 it's hard to imagine that somebody like you with the skill set that you bring and the ability to sort of multitask and think through and do all the things that you did um in other cases that's not going to be there and that that's what i think is just sort of how in many ways lucky it w- lucky is a weird word but like in many cases how su- surprising or mm-hmm. you know sort of like unusual that this actually happened in the first place yeah that's and that's actually a lot of the motivation for why i chose to write the memoir it is a very compelling story all of these dynamics that had to come together and just what happened behind the scenes. Uh, But I really wanted people to understand what it took and how everybody at every point in the chain had to be capable uh, of doing the right thing. Because I could have been me and gotten a detective who didn't care. Or I could have been me and gotten a detective who cared and a prosecutor who didn't. Or a judge who didn't or a jury who didn't. At every point in time, that process can break down. Uh, and so I wanted to lay out, you know, this is this is what it cost. This is how it had to work. This is the team of people that had to come together and tell that compelling story of what it took to wrest control from these organizations, but do it in a way that makes them go, if it cost her that much and it took that much, what about those who don't have that, who don't have that support system, who don't have the detective and the prosecutor? You know, what about those victims? Because those are the victims we have to be advocating for, and that's the vast majority of them. That's why I'm so you know so passionate about legislative change and trauma training for investigators and prosecutors and just taking a very multifaceted approach to what has to happen to change the culture of abuse because it really can break down at every level and people need to understand that. Rachel Den Hollander's book is called What is a Girl Worth? My Story of Breaking the Silence and Exposing the Truth about Larry Nasser and USA Gymnastics. Without Fail is hosted by me and produced by Molly Messick and Rob Zipko. It is edited by me and Devin Taylor. Mixing by Keegan Zemma. Music by Bobby Lord. The excerpt from Rachel's book that appears in this episode is used by permission of Recorded Books, Inc. If you like Without Fail, follow the show. You can get every episode for free through Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, quick programming note, we're taking some time off for the holidays. We will see you next in the new year. Thanks for listening.